John chapter 10, beginning in verse 27. Brethren, let us hear God's holy word. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, <clears throat> and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of His infallible Word to our hearts this evening. <clears throat> now the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage have been a comfort to the Lord's people throughout the ages. Nevertheless, that comfort is often stolen by false notions of salvation. There are many throughout the history of the Church of Jesus Christ who have held that one can be saved and yet sin in such a way as to lose his salvation. Now the Lord Jesus makes several things very clear in this passage. Number one, those who are Christ's sheep hear His voice and follow Him. It is a distinct, clear, definable people doing clearly definable things. That is, those who are saved believe the Word of God and obey Jesus Christ. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Second, Christ knows them. <clears throat> that is, Jesus Christ has an intimate and loving relationship with them. Number three, these are the ones who Christ gives eternal life. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give unto them. That specific group of people known here as his sheep. I give them <clears throat> eternal life. They're hearing his word and obeying Him are evidences that they possess this life. Number four, they shall never perish. That's the title of our study this evening. They shall never perish. That is, they are no longer under the wrath and condemnation of God and will never Suffer the torments of hell. Number five. No one is able to snatch them away out of Christ's hand or the Father's hand. <clears throat> In other words, they are safe as well as saved. 
Number six, because Christ and the Father are one in essence and one in purpose. To be in their hands is to be in an impregnable fortress and in an eternally safe condition. Now, taking all of this together, one must conclude that those who are Christ's sheep are saved and safe in Him through all eternity. Let's look at it again. My sheep, a distinguishable people, hear my voice. They believe the Word of God. The power of God's Spirit makes it real to them. And by the regenerating work of God's Spirit, they believe that Word. They hear my voice, and I know them. He is in a blessed relationship with them, and they follow me. They follow Him because they believe His Word. They're alive in the Spirit. And they love the One who knows them and loves them and gave Himself for them. And I give unto them eternal life. No one else possesses this life. And they shall never perish. This follows on the heels of all that has been said. They hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. Therefore, they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. He goes on to double the strength of that. Not only are they in my hand and safe, they're in my Father's hand and safe. There is a, an absolute certainty of their safety here. And he seals it by saying, I and my Father are one. By their eternal, almighty, sovereign purpose and power, God the Father and His Son save and keep safe the sheep. And this is why this has been a blessing to the Lord's people throughout the ages. Were this the only passage concerning the eternal safety of God's children, there could be no argument as to the absolute certainty of their eternal security. However, there are other passages in Scripture that appear to say otherwise. Since the Word of God contains no contradictions, then... <clears throat> We must search the Scriptures to carefully consider how these seemingly contradictory notions work together. How is it that there are those whom it is impossible to renew unto repentance in Hebrews 6, and yet what would appear to be a passage speaking of absolute and certain uh, uh, security for God's children here in John 10? Well, we want to understand those things. So, with this thought, we take up the last unit of our survey of the doctrine of grace. Uh, let's quickly review what we have considered over the last few months. In unit one, 
we explored the Bible's declarations of God's sovereign rule over all things. We answered Pharaoh's question, Who is the Lord? With the biblical answer, The Lord God Omnipotent. It is He who rules and reigns over all things, including the salvation of sinners. Unit 2 began with the question, What is man? And this led us to consider the biblical record of man's radical depravity. The natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit because he is dead in his trespasses and sins. Therefore, man's will is in bondage to his lusts and Satan. In Unit 3, we took up the very important themes of predestination and election. Here, we discovered that God loved His people before the foundation of the world and purposed to rescue them from their sin and misery. Now, He designed their complete deliverance from sin and death in Him. In Unit 4, it was made plain that Christ accomplished a full and complete salvation for every one of His children. Every one of those that God loved before time and chose, Christ came to redeem. This is the doctrine of particular redemption or definite atonement. We answered the question from Scripture, for whom did Christ die? And the biblical answer we found time and time again was His people, His elect, His sheep, the church. And we could go on as we did. Thou shalt call His name Jesus. Jehovah saves, or the salvation of Jehovah. For He shall save His people from their sins. And this is most clearly seen in Christ's high priestly work on the cross and in His intercession at the right hand of the Father. Unit 5 taught us that the Holy Spirit's, or, or taught us uh, of the Holy Spirit's application of salvation to the church. Efficacious grace is what we called it. It's the term used for the Holy Ghost regenerating power in effectually calling the elect to salvation. Now, the Word of God shows us that repentance and faith by which men lay hold of everlasting life are glorious gifts from God and the result of the new birth. In other words, the Bible is revealed who God is, how He governs things, who man is, and how desperately he needs salvation, what God the Father has purposed to save his people from their sins, what Christ the Son has done to accomplish a full and complete salvation, and how the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to each and every one of God's elect. And all that brings us to Unit 6, which is the preservation and perseverance of the saints. Now, apart from the issue of free will, there is no more hotly debated doctrine among the doctrines of grace than this one. All of them will stir up 
discussion among various theological systems. But this one is one that is ever-present when people come together. Is the believer safe for all eternity, or can he lose his salvation? There's probably not a pastor that ever has been or ever will be that has not had that question asked him. Can I lose my salvation? Let me qualify that by saying biblical pastor. This is a theological battleground. And all of the other doctrines that we have uh, looked at terminate here, ultimately. As John Murray says, quote, Experience, observation, biblical history, and certain scripture passages would appear to provide very strong arguments against the doctrine which has been called the perseverance of the saints. Now, that's a very rich statement. And uh, it, it deserves some consideration. He says, experience seems to tell us that this doctrine isn't necessarily so. How many of us have known people that seem to be, as the Puritans would call them, fair professors? They look wonderful. They sound great. You look at their lives and they seem to be fired up for the service of the Lord. And then in time, the proverbial dog returns to his vomit. I would want to say, I hope no one has ever had that experience, but if you have walked with the Lord for any amount of time, uh, I would imagine that most of you can say, I've known people who have gone away from what they professed. Observation. He says, biblical history. Of course, uh, we look through the Bible, and there are people that seem to be good, then we find out that Demas has forsaken Paul because he loved the present world. How is that possible? He finishes by saying certain scripture passages and of course the one that generally comes to men's minds when we talk about people losing their salvation. They will either first go to Hebrews and go to Hebrews 6 and say, here it is right here, people that have experienced all these things, and then they apostatize. Plain and simple, people can be saved and then lost. Or they'll go to Galatians and quote Paul about those who have fallen from grace. So Murray is right. Experience, observation, biblical history, and certain scriptural passages would appear to provide very strong arguments against the doctrine which has been called the perseverance of the saints. Now along with the other doctrines of grace, this one is subject to misunderstanding and must be handled very carefully. It is vitally important for us to grasp a biblical balance between the doctrine of perseverance and the doctrine of apostasy. 
Brethren, there is a doctrine of apostasy in the Word of God. And there are a lot of people that want to say there isn't. Especially in gray circles. But an historic and balanced understanding of this doctrine gives no room for the loose, so to speak, believer. So it is very important that we handle these passages carefully. The doctrine of preservation and perseverance is sometimes called eternal security. But it is most often referred to in our day as once saved, always saved. Now, as we will see, preservation and perseverance are probably the best terms, especially in light of the modern abuses and weak understanding of once saved, always saved. The modern notion of that is something like this. If I've made a decision at some point in my life, it doesn't matter how I live, I cannot be but eternally saved. That is false doctrine. So, it is true if properly understood biblically that once someone is according to the scriptures saved he can never be anything but saved but our watered down notions of salvation today are the primary reasons for not understanding this doctrine so it is my hope that in the unfolding weeks, God will grant us light to lay hold of what the Scriptures teach regarding the preservation and the perseverance of God's beloved children. Rightly understood, it does not lead to loose, careless living. In fact, it does exactly the opposite. It sharpens us and makes us understand the importance of our responsibility for God, uh, before God even as we trust His sovereign grace. So we will probably spend more time studying this one doctrine than all the rest of them. So this evening is basically an introductory survey to this particular uh, doctrine. And tonight we want to look at the definitions and statement of preservation and perseverance of the saints. Now, when we speak of the preservation and perseverance of the saints, we are not saying, this is very important, uh, John Gill always wonderfully starts off his comments with, we don't mean this, 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 and this. We do mean probably this and that. And we're fairly certain about this. I won't do that many this evening, but we do want to start with what it isn't. We don't mean 
we don't mean and we are not saying that everyone who professes to believe in Christ and who is accepted by the church of Jesus Christ is secure for all eternity. We're not saying that simply because a church evaluates you and says, you seem all right to us, that that means necessarily you are saved. We do not mean that everyone that says he is a Christian and appears to be a Christian must of necessity enter heaven when he passes from this life. John Murray says this again. This is from his uh, redemption accomplished and applied. The scripture itself, therefore, leads us to the conclusion that it is possible to have very uplifting, ennobling, reforming, and exhilarating experience of the power and truth of the gospel to come into such close contact with the supernatural forces which are operative in God's kingdom of grace that these forces produce effects in us which to human observation are hardly distinguishable from those produced by God's regenerating and sanctifying grace and yet be not partakers of Christ and heirs of eternal life. Once again, that's a powerful statement. We must get over the cheap grace attitudes that we have all inculcated by being uh, in the close proximity that we are to culturized American religion in the name of Christ. I don't want to be one of those who steals the comfort from this passage. But I want us to understand why it's comforting and especially how close People can be to what uh, appears uh, to be a biblical Christian and be lost. Never forget, if you have read Pilgrim's Progress carefully, at the very end, one is lost at the very gates of heaven. If you want very sobering reading sometime, take Matthew Mead's The Almost Christian. And read that through very carefully. And you will see how often the scriptures do speak to these issues. The reason that there is so much controversy over this doctrine is because there are so many passages, far more than in the issue of the atonement, there are so many passages that speak of those who appear to be fair professors falling away that it would seem the only right conclusion is that you can have salvation and lose it. And yet we say, no, that's not what the Scriptures teach. So, it's very important that we lay hold of the biblical testimony. So we begin with the definition of two words, perseverance and preservation. Perseverance means to persist in any enterprise undertaken. You go on in it. To pursue steadily any design or course commenced. Notice that. 
to pursue steadily, to go on with it. Not give over or abandon what is over undertaken. Not to give it up. Not to quit before you get to the end of the race. I remember, hard as this may be to believe, at one time in my life I actually ran track. And I remember our coach saying, when you get out there and you run, he said, you finish that race no matter what happens. And he said, if you run out of steam and you have to walk across the line, you do it. And, and that always left a very clear picture in my mind. He wasn't about to let anybody just walk off the track because someone had outrun them or because they hurt. Sometimes I actually saw them running something go bad in their ankle or their, their knee and under those directions, they'd hop to the end of that, 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 that track. They would do anything they could just to finish. They persevered. It didn't matter whether they had to crawl across the line. What the coach was burning into our minds is if you get on that track, you get across that line. If everyone else beats you, fine, but you finish. This is the idea in perseverance. Going on with it. It doesn't talk about necessarily, and we're not throwing this out, but the issue here isn't how well we do it, though that certainly is important. But we want to get to the end. That's the point. Secondly, the word preservation. Very important. Very important word. It means to keep or save from injury or from destruction. Someone intervening on our behalf to deliver us from destruction, to defend from evil, to uphold and sustain. This is why we use both words. Preservation is something that someone does for us Perseverance is something that we do. And in this, we have both the grace of God and the responsibility of man. God's wonderful keeping, preserving grace and man's perseverance to the end of the race. So that's the definition of our words. And I hope those are clear. The meaning of the doctrine. Louis Burkhoff, if you've ever read his wonderful systematic theology or any of his other doctrinal books, he's always worth reading. Whether you agree with him at every point or not, he is always helpful. Burkhoff explains the doctrine of perseverance this way. I thought this was an excellent exposition. He says, Perseverance may be defined as that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. 
Now, as helpful as that is, it actually blurs the distinction just a little bit. What is absolutely correct in my understanding of the Word of God is His saying that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. But that more rightly defines, in my understanding of things, preservation. And it is that preservation that causes us to persevere. The believer cannot sustain himself. The believer is preserved by the grace of God so that he perseveres in his life of faith and holiness. Does everybody see the distinction there? One is God's work within us. One is God's grace in helping us even if we have to crawl across the finish line. That crawling across the finish line, we're crawling. We're the ones. Whether we run across with our, our, our chest thrown forward, taking a first prize and, and, and breaking the ribbon, everyone else coming along behind, or whether we're the last one, huffing and puffing and crawling across, either way, we persevere because we are preserved. It is God's grace within us, but because He is in us, He works within us both to will and to what? do of His good pleasure. Now, I take the time to labor this so that we recognize that yes, if we are saved by the grace of God, we are kept by the grace of God. But the keeping grace is working within us to walk according to the Word of God. My sheep hear my voice. And they follow me. They, they're the ones doing it, follow me. Why do they follow him? Because he gives them eternal life. He's in union with them. And that life in union with them moves their hearts and souls to walk according to his word. Let's take a few minutes to consider the declaration of our confession. <clears throat> Those whom God hath accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, whence He still begets and nourisheth in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon, notwithstanding through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God 
may for a time be clouded and obscured from them. Yet he is still the same, and they shall be purchased, excuse me, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they being engraven upon the palm of his hands, and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. Brethren, that's a wonderful paragraph. But do you good to read that on a regular basis, that it is full of the language of Scripture. The second paragraph, and by the way, the, the, the three paragraphs in, in our confession that speak of, of the perseverance of God's dear children, uh, I think are uh, wonderful and remarkable in their clarity. Second paragraph says, This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with Him, the oath of God, the abiding of His Spirit, and the seed of God within them, and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which ariseth also the certainty and infallibility thereof. Thank you, that's good. Number three. And though they may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur, incur God's displeasure and grieve His Holy Spirit, come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves, yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. You look far and wide to find three paragraphs that say this much in so few words. But brethren, here is our doctrine understood. Now I realize that, uh, again, this is very compressed language. It's very, very rich and takes uh, our focusing in virtually on every sentence. But the point is, what is laid out here, and if you read through the Scripture proofs that they put here, you begin to see a glorious biblical picture that God has purposed to save His people and, in fact, He does so infallibly. He saves them in the truest sense, as we will see in one of our later studies, to be saved is to be saved. we must understand what real salvation is. I would say that the question can we lose our salvation is not the right one to ask ultimately. 
The issue is, do you know what salvation is and do you have it? By the very nature, uh, the very uh, notion, the idea of being saved means being rescued and delivered. And if we understand what Christ has done to save and deliver us, we cannot run the risk of ever being anything but saved. We must know, though, what this great salvation is. And it's not simply raising the hand, signing a card, walking an aisle. Now let's consider finally this evening the foundation of the doctrine. This is a, a good statement of it from our confession. But I want you to listen carefully. These foundational statements that I'm about to make, there are four of them, are all found in these three paragraphs. And in turn... They all are derived directly from plain scriptural statements. This is the foundation of our doctrine. And this is why the saints of God will persevere. Number one, preservation and perseverance flow from the immutability of God's nature, His purposes, and His promises. Preservation and perseverance flow from the immutability, the unchangeableness of God's nature, His purposes and promises. Secondly, uh, preservation and perseverance flow from the mediation and intercession of Jesus Christ. the mediation and the intercession of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the preservation and perseverance flow from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, preservation and perseverance flow from the nature of salvation itself. Alright? Now when you hear that, if you're listening carefully and beginning to uh, reason these things through just a little bit, there, there should be something that, that rings a bell of familiarity. Ultimately, what we're laying out here is what we've said in the previous five units. We've been studying who God is and what man's condition is and what God has purposed to do for lost man and what He has accomplished in Christ the Son, and what He applies by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we truly understand these things, we will understand how it is that God preserves and how we persevere. Let me say them again one more time. The immutability of God's nature, His purposes and promises, the mediation and intercession of Jesus Christ, what He's done to save us, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the result of the new birth, and the very nature of salvation itself. Brethren, 
if you remember what may have uh, been for some of you a little difficult uh, language when we first began, we, we, we spoke about uh, how a thing is accomplished and that there must be an agent and there, and there must be a goal and there must be a means. You know, when we begin to talk this way, it very often it sounds artificial to people. It sounds synthetic. It doesn't sound like the Bible. And we don't see those words in there. But we use them in order to try to at least to get a hold of paint and, and paint mental pictures. Brethren, as we have looked through these particular doctrines over and over and over now for months, what we've seen is that the Scriptures give a glorious testimony that before the foundation of the world, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had a glorious design to save a people from their sins. God the Father desired to give His holy and beloved Son a bride. And the purpose was designed by the Father's love, accomplished in the Father and the Son's love and incarnation, and applied by the Holy Spirit's love to each and every one of God's elect. And this glorious purpose had a goal. Christ's bride with Christ in a glorious union for all eternity. What we may call glorification. And if God purposed it, we must wrestle with the questions and the implications of the verses that say people that seem to be Christians fall away. We've got to wrestle with the verses of Christ saying, all that the Father gives me will come to me. How do we see these verses together? How do we understand that there is apostasy and yet all of God's people will be saved? Well, that's why we're going to spend a good bit of time in the next few weeks on these passages. But let's close this evening by going back to what the Lord Jesus said. He said, My personal pronoun." My possessive pronoun. My sheep. Those that are His hear My voice. And I know them. Notice in verse 26. Ye believe not because ye are not of My sheep. As I said unto you. He does not say you are not My sheep because you don't believe. He says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep, hear my voice. And I know them. I have an intimate union with them because I have loved them and purposed to have them before the foundation of the world. I know them. I knew them before I ever said, let there be light. And I know them now. And I will know them for all eternity. It is a holy romance. It is a glorious love epic. I know them. And they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. 
and they shall never perish. They shall never perish. Brethren, as we go through this, this uh, series of studies, we want to see that the glorious testimony of one passage after another is that God's elect, God's sheep, will never perish. They will never be lost in hell. And this is of a great, glorious encouragement to His people. Let us, by His mercy, understand what is being said to us so that we will not lose sight of the beauty of this doctrine. We persevere because we're preserved. We are safe in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we prove to know that we are His. Let's pray. Father, this is a most joyful and yet a most solemn study because Your Word is abundantly clear. Many that start the race never finish. Father, we want to understand why that is. And we want to understand uh, in clear scriptural terms. So, Father, I pray that in the weeks ahead you will clear away any fog in our thinking and that the, the glorious light of Thy Word will truly sharpen us and give us grounds for joy and praise and thanksgiving. Thank you for the promises of preserving us. And thank you, Lord, that by your grace we do persevere. May all the praise and the glory and honor be unto Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.